Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. It's liveliness in here today. I love it, I love it, I love it. Um, it, is a, um, it is a good day, it's a special day. If you don't know my friend, this is my friend Patrick. And uh, Patrick, how long do you want this intro before you speak? I mean, if it's good things, then as long as you want. <laughs> what if it's like 50-50? Yeah, then no. half the length, I yeah, don't know. <laughs> yeah. Patrick served here as our sports ministry pastor as well as our junior high pastor. But I just wanted to know a few things um, about who he is and who he is in this church and who he is to me because his voice is significant for our church and for our fam church family and will continue to be as he has an opportunity to speak into a lot of things. So I just want you to know, I met this young man as a teenager. He grew up in our youth ministry here. I also got to meet him on the football field as a young freshman. I think I taught you how to put your helmet on and those kinds of things. And we spent a lot of time together in a lot of different places. I put and it on backwards. Yes, he did. It was, it was a mess. And uh, Patrick went off to Biola, went to Talbot Seminary, did a lot of stuff. So I am so proud of the things that Patrick has done in his life. He now teaches Bible over at Valley Christian and speaks into the lives of a lot of kids. But what I want you to hear uh, mostly from me is that Patrick goes to our church. He is a voice within our church. He is a model of God using people within the church to do the ministry of the church. So Patrick is going to minister to you and with you this morning by teaching God's word. I am proud of him. I believe in him. And I'm looking forward to a lot of years where he, he's able to do this as a part of us. May you be challenged as well as that we are a church that raises people up and empowers them to serve in ways that God has gifted them and that God wants to use you. So as you hear Patrick teach today, know that this is a place that does it, and I'm looking forward to doing that a lot more with a lot of you, just how God moves and how God leads. So I'm going to pray over Patrick, and he's going to teach. Father, I thank you for Patrick. I thank you for who he is in my life, but God, thank you that how much you have done in his life. Man, empower him, embolden him, Father, as I love, let's look forward to sitting under his teaching as well this morning. Um, just bless our time. In your name, amen. Welcome, amen. my friend, Patrick McDonald, all right? Uh, so a few days ago, I, I was at a wedding for a really, really good friend of mine. Um, I got to be a groomsman in his wedding. And due to some last-minute logistics, I also got to officiate the wedding. <laughs> so it was my first time pulling double duty. Um, I don't want to brag, but I was kind of a big deal on a Friday. <laughs> we all know all eyes were definitely on me. Now, in, in reality, I was about as important to this wedding as Michael Scott was when Phyllis married Bob Vance of Vance Refrigeration. And my favorite part of the wedding, and this was my favorite part because it, I finally had a story to share this morning in my intro, uh, was after the ceremony was done, we were hanging around taking pictures. And then they wanted to get a big, a big, uh, big photo of the bride's family. And a lot of, a lot of them had flown from out of town um, to, to be here. And as they were almost ready for the photo, the, the bride's father looked around and he just said, hey, Aaron. He was like, you're one of us now. Like, get in this photo. 
right? And it was a moment that just really illustrated like something significant happened on Friday. New family was formed. My friends have a new identity. And now Aaron is a part of this family, right? He's gonna be in this photo that proves and shows you are one of us, you belong. You are a member of the family now. I think we all have had different moments in life maybe where we felt like we belong or we don't belong. Um, sometimes we feel more confident, less confident in that depending on the environment or where we are, if we're, if we're new. But it feels good to belong. And it feels good to know that we have a place to be. And this is a big point that Jesus is going to touch on in our passage this morning about what it looks like to belong to God's family. How do we know that we get to belong? How should that change the way that we live? What does that really mean for us? Now, up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, Right? Mark's really been focusing on Jesus' actions, maybe his interactions with people. Right? Mark hasn't interjected much to tell us kind of what he thinks or what we should believe. But he's showing us a series of events because he wants us to read and to hear and to get a picture for ourselves of who Jesus is. And kind of the way he forms his gospel, the way he wrote it, his narrative approach or style, this first third of the book, roughly, he's really focusing on the question of who is Jesus. So as we're reading, what he wants us to pick up is who is Jesus and why should this matter to us? What difference does it make? In today's passage, what we're going to see is that Mark wants to show us Jesus is the Messiah. He conquers spiritual evil, and this matters because since Jesus has conquered evil, since he has spiritual authority, he can invite us to be a part of his new spiritual family that he is forming. And being a part of God's family changes everything for us. Now, this morning, we're going to finally get to the end of chapter 3. Right? Mark doesn't waste words. Right? He packs a lot in. Even last week, um, or two, two weeks ago, when I was listening to the message and I looked at the passages we had, and I was like, I know I'm coming up in two weeks, and do I have the right? I felt like I was going to be in chapter 6. Right? But Mark packs a lot, so we're going more slowly. Because we want to pay attention and we want to make sure we don't miss anything. But so far, as like a quick recap, right? Mark starts off, he gives this prophecy from the book of Isaiah, talks about how John the Baptist fulfills it. He's preparing the way. He's showing us Jesus is important. Jesus is significant. And then what happens? We see Jesus get baptized. God speaks from heaven, declaring that Jesus is his son. He goes into the wilderness. He's tempted by Satan. Angels come and minister to him. Right? People start to follow Jesus. They leave behind their families, sometimes their jobs. 
Jesus is demonstrating his authority over sickness, over disease and evil spirits. He's healing people who can't be healed. You know, we read about recently how we healed someone who was paralyzed and couldn't walk. We see demons recognizing Jesus. They know who he is. They're the only people, well, not people, they're the only thing so far who seem to recognize who he really is, right? And it freaks them out. They get scared. And Jesus casts them out like it's nothing, like it's easy for him. Right? We see that he hangs out with sinners and tax collectors and the religious leaders. They're not the biggest fans of that decision. And then recently we, we read about how he healed on the Sabbath. He claimed authority to forgive sins, which means he equated himself with God, which if that's not true, that would be a punishable offense, punishable by death. And while all of these great things are happening, we, we, we notice this kind of tension and this conflict brewing between Jesus and the religious leaders of the time. Because he's not teaching and doing things the way that they were expecting or the way that they're used to. So there's tension, there's conflict. And when we get to our passage for the, today, Jesus is going to start to draw a, a, land, a, a line in the sand and start to make it clear for the first time in Mark's gospel that we all have to make a decision about who we're going to follow and what we're going to believe. Is Jesus who he says he is? Who is this guy? So in Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 20, we read, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. Right? So we've got a crowd, which we might have come to expect. Everywhere Jesus goes, people want to see what's going to happen. People want to hear what he has to say. And instead of being like impressed or supportive, um, Jesus' family's worried. Right? They're a little bit concerned. And then the religious leaders came up and they said, no, Jesus isn't crazy. He is demon-possessed. Now, if we didn't realize already, if we think back to some of the passages we've read in previous weeks, right, it's pretty clear who the bad guys are in this story. Right? They've got terms like they call them either evil spirits or unclean spirits, Satan. Those are the bad guys. And the religious leaders have just walked up and said, Jesus is on their team. 
You think he's doing these incredible miracles. You think he's doing these good things, but he only has power and authority over demons because he's possessed by one himself. And it's really this powerful demon inside him who is doing these things. Quite the accusation, wouldn't you say? And I think we can probably know that the religious leaders, it's going to be really hard to walk this one back, right? They've kind of thrown down the gauntlet. And so Jesus responds and he replies and he says, it says, so Jesus called them over to him and he began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. So Jesus first just provides, I don't know, some basic logic. Like your, your accusation, it makes no sense, right? Teams are united and now you're claiming that Satan's team is divided. If that's his plan, it's a terrible plan. It will not work. Like everything you have said about me, not only is it untrue, but it's rather foolish. But Jesus goes a little bit farther than that. And when he starts to mention how he's tied up the strong man, he says, not only am I not on the side of evil, but I have conquered evil. I have conquered Satan, right? We think back to the temptation in the wilderness. And while Mark doesn't give quite as many details as some of the other gospels, we do read about how Jesus was tempted by Satan. And we do read how he refuted him. And that's kind of their first standoff. And I think in some ways he's reminding people, Mark's reminding people that Jesus won the first battle. Jesus will continue to win every battle moving forward. And for those of us who have read to the end of the story, we know that Jesus wins the ultimate battle and he wins the ultimate victory over Satan. And so in this passage where the religious leaders have, have brought things to a point where Jesus says, you basically have to take a side. You've accused me of one thing, but I'm demonstrating and I'm claiming that there are two sides in this. And not only... Am I on the good side? But I've already won. I cannot lose. And with this, he goes on to show the Pharisees how significant and important and consequential this type of decision is. In verse 28, he tells them, truly I tell you, 
People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. In some of our stories in previous weeks, Jesus demonstrated and claimed that he had the authority and the ability to forgive sins. And here he's saying, God will forgive any and all sins that anybody would ever commit. Doesn't matter how many, doesn't matter how bad, those can and will be forgiven if you believe in Jesus. But he says there is this one sin. That will not be forgiven. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now, you might read this and be freaked out a tiny bit. Right? Sometimes, you know, if you're like me, maybe first, second, third, who knows how many times I read it, and I'm like, I don't, I don't think I've done this one. But I but what exactly does this mean? Now, I think in context of this passage, um, what's really, really clear is how the religious leaders of the time have basically denied everything that's true about Jesus. They've witnessed the power of God doing great things, and they have said, Jesus, we don't believe that you are from God. We believe that you are from the enemy. We don't believe that these miracles that you have done have been done through the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe they've been done through the power of the enemy. And what Jesus is saying is, if you believe that, it's because you do not believe who I really am. You do not understand that I'm the Messiah. You do not believe that I am the Son of God. You do not believe that I and I alone have the power to forgive sins. So blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, or as some translations might say, grieving the Holy Spirit, it's not about something that we could accidentally stumble into or in a moment of being really emotional or angry, say something to God that gets us in trouble for all eternity. It's ultimately about demonstrating an utter and complete rejection of Jesus as God's son. It's about rejecting the reality that Jesus is the only one who can offer us the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's the problem here with the religious leaders. It's not simply that they like called him a name or told him he was one of the bad guys. It's that they're demonstrating that they are rejecting the truth of the gospel that he is bringing. And I think part of the reason this interaction happens and it's kind of put in spiritual terms like this is because it addresses the spiritual reality of our lives. 
and it addresses the spiritual reality that we can have a relationship with God and the spiritual reality that this decision lasts not just for our physical lifetime on earth, but it lasts for eternity. So again, Mark, going back to that question of who is Jesus, he's presenting us with a decision here. Is Jesus from God? Is Jesus God's son? Is Jesus the Messiah? Is Jesus the one who can forgive all sins? And we have a choice. To believe or not believe. And Jesus makes clear that this decision has eternal consequences. So he gives us that opportunity to embrace God, to embrace God's kingdom, to spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. But I think Mark kind of softens this a little bit with the next few verses. It helps us understand this is not just simply some like transactional thing. It's not simply moving from um, like stepping into truth, believing lies before or being naive and stepping into truth. But instead, he starts to put this in more intimate terms, kind of familial terms. Right? In verse 31, he writes, Then, so after all this crazy chaos, and Jesus making a really strong point, Mark writes that Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone to call him in. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And it's at this moment that we see Jesus is not just imploring us to make a decision, but he is inviting us to be members of of his spiritual family. And when we look at this passage, it's kind of interesting because the intro mentions Jesus' family, and then at the end it mentions Jesus' family, and then in between he kind of smashes in or sandwiches in um, this kind of intense religious spiritual drama. And he's kind of using this technique to help us see that he's teaching us about God's family and teaching us about Jesus' family and the spiritual reality. But he puts it in very spiritual terms. And in here, the question becomes, who, who is a member of God's family? Now, can you imagine, right? You're somewhere hanging out with people Someone comes up, hey, um, Patrick, your mom needs you. I'm like, yeah, my friends are here. Or like, well, you know, like, I'm kind of, I'm kind of busy right now. 
right? And I don't think Jesus was being disrespectful necessarily. Um, he was probably saying something kind of for dramatic effect, right? It would shock people a little bit. Like, Jesus, like your mom's kind of important. Um, we get that. And I would say even back then when he was alive, family was everything. And what Jesus is showing is he's like, look, the reality is I am not just a man. I am not just here as a human on earth. But I am here to represent God. And in a physical sense, yes, she is my mother, those are my brothers, and I won't have, have any others. But in a spiritual reality, anyone who chooses to follow me, anyone who chooses to believe in me, you are now my brother and my sister. You now have God as your father. And in Jesus' time, the idea of family was tied heavily to, to status, to belonging, right? And so for him, I think he was making the point to people at the time, look, it really doesn't matter what kind of a family you were born into. Like your family might have been respected, well-known. Your family might be a disaster. And back then, if your family was a disaster, you were looked down upon. He's saying, it doesn't matter wh who your parents are. You choose to believe in me. You're part of my family. You're part of God's family. That is your new identity, right? And you've been lifted up. And if you come from a great family, he says, that means nothing when it comes to whether or not you're accepted by God. Your status, your accomplishments, aren't what gets you in. Believing in Jesus is what gets you in. And I think today, if Jesus was here, it would be, he might say it a little bit differently than he did 2,000 years ago. Because um, I don't know that we care as much about family status in 21st century Silicon Valley. But I do think we care a lot about accomplishments Right? We live in a culture and an environment where we strive to be successful. We strive to accomplish great things. We look to our achievements to feel good about who we are. And maybe we look to our achievements to help other people be impressed with us. Right? Whether it's like your GPA or sometimes, you know, after, after a big test, I will hear students talking about what grades they got. Oh, you got a 98? I only got a 97. And let's be real. Like, that sometimes is where the, where the competition is at times. It's not between like, oh, yeah, we all got A's. It's like, well, I got one more point than you. Um, maybe you're really excited to be working for like a cool, big tech company. Maybe you work at like a, like a startup and you're like, I get to be on the ground floor and we're going to do great things and change the world. Um, maybe you just look at the number on your paycheck and that's how you feel good about what you've accomplished. I think we admire leaders, innovators, doctors, 
We admire people who do incredible things. And there's a lot about that I think is great. But I think for us, if Mark were to kind of give like an updated, revised version of chapter 3, he would focus on making sure what we hear is it doesn't matter how much you've accomplished in this life. Some of the greatest worldly accomplishments do not get you in to God's family. Believing that Jesus is the Son of God gets you in to God's family. And I think he would look at people too and say, look, you might feel like I have literally accomplished nothing. One, that's not true, but sometimes we feel that way. And Jesus would look at you and he would say, look, I don't care that you don't have the job you hoped you would have. I don't care that life hasn't gone the way you had planned. None of that could possibly keep you out of being a part of my family. All you have to do is choose to believe that I am who I say I am. And this is significant because when we become members of God's family, members of Jesus' spiritual family that he's created, it doesn't just start now, but it lasts for eternity. And between now and then, our lives should look different. Our lives should be ones that honor God, that build each other up, that further his kingdom. And it should be something where people feel like they belong. Because one of the things that, that comes to mind for me when I think about family is it means that you belong. Right? I've got some friends here today. They're not blood relatives, but we call them Uncle Dwayne and Aunt Deline. Right? Because they've been there for us through thick and thin. They went with me and helped me take my kids to Gilroy Gardens twice this summer. <laughs> and Dwayne went on a bunch of the rides that I didn't want to go on. Sorry, Audrey, I, you didn't hear that. But being family is not just about blood. And it's not even just about titles. It's about belonging. And on Sundays, how can we make sure people feel like they belong? I'll tell you one way that I felt like I belonged here. And that is every single time that Mike Small has said hello to me. Because if you know Mike, he has just the biggest smile. He's got the most love. And I would see him sometimes across campus. I'd be like leaving, maybe picking up my kids from the preschool. Maybe I had a hard day, you know, and he's so far off, I can barely see him. But then I can hear him. He's like, Patrick, <laughs> it's good to see you, brother. And Mike, that has made my day so many times. And now we can't all 
be like Mike. And we're not all quite extroverts like that. I myself am not an extrovert. But we do have, you know, the two-minute countdown to, to meet and greet. Um, and so I would say on, you know, first to the extroverts, like, be okay doing some of the heavy lifting for us. All right? And if you're an introvert, like, don't run away. Don't time it and be like, you know, I could use the restroom before service, but I know I got those two minutes coming. Even, even this morning during service, I was like, do I really want to say hi to someone? And I was like, I'm supposed to mention this in my sermon. So I met, is it Victoria? Is that right? Yeah. So I met Victoria this morning, right? And we had a nice two-minute chat. And I'm looking forward to seeing you every Sunday that we're both here at the same time, right? And even though, even though I often sit over on the student side, because, um, you know, that's where I was sitting when I was in high school and... I never really want to leave. It's my comfort zone. Um, but I'll make the walk, right, to say hi to Victoria. And my encouragement would be, look, we're here together. It should not be just like a meeting place or a random gathering. But we are here because we have strong spiritual ties that as God's children, as brothers and sisters in Christ, they go far deeper than any other type of worldly or physical connections, right? And if you're shy and you don't like saying hi, I get it. I don't always like it either. I'm pretty good with learning names, so I try to work hard at that um, so I can at least say hi to somebody by name. I still remember one of the first times, so my family, we started coming to Calvary when I was in middle school, and it was like new and different and fun, um, but I still remember it was about three years in or so, the first time I really felt like I belonged here, and it was We'd been doing some summer football, right? Dale was my coach. Um, I was quiet and shy, and I don't even know if I had said hi to him at that point. Um, just like, yes, coach, that kind of stuff. But I remember walking up those steps, and I don't know if we were, people were sitting or standing, but Dale stepped out of the aisle to shake my hand and say hi. And that was a moment where I was like, Calvary, like this is my home. This is where I belong. Right? And so I do think even small things with like greeting people and going out of your way to do that, um, it can make a really big difference. Right? And I even think about with um, the times that I've been with the traditional service. Right? It's only been a few times, and there's a lot of names for me to try and learn. And I wasn't, I just wasn't going to. And They've really helped me out because anytime I see them, they introduce themselves, they say, hi, Patrick. And then they just, they tell me their name and they tell me who I might know that they also know, like to help make that connection, right? And they just cut through the awkwardness of like, I've seen you before, but I don't remember you. Um, and they've been a great example and challenge to me to kind of break out of some of that introvert side because it's important that we make sure people know that they belong when they come to our church on Sunday mornings. Right, and I think too, we should invest. We should invest time and energy because that's what we do with family. We spend time with them. We do things for them that we might not do for an acquaintance, so to speak. 
right? We've got children's volunteers who right now, like they are not in service with us, but they are literally caring for the spiritual well-being of our children. That's a big commitment, a big sacrifice, a big way to give and be a part of the church family. And sometimes we got people who just hopes pool parties for us, right? Like the Horries, they would host pool parties for the middle school group when I was pastor, and they didn't even have any kids in the student ministries group anymore. But they're like, we got a great pool, and it's right by church. Right? And the Todds and the Oulds, they were always some of my go-tos where I knew I could get enough pool parties in because they were happy to host. You know, the Gills and the Bushes have done so as well. My kids had so much fun Thursday at the Bushes' house that they hosted the pool party. Right, Audrey? That was fun? Yeah. In community groups, right? Maybe you can't lead it, but you could host it. Maybe you can't do either of those, but you could show up once a week or every other week and participate and be a part of something deeper. You know, and just think through, like, what are things that I would do for a family member that I might not do for an acquaintance? Right? Things, random things to me that come to mind is, like, helping people move. Right? If you've ever moved, like, it's the worst. Like, it's, like I just, we've moved so many times, and it never got easier. It only got more and more terrible. Um, and I've had a lot of people help help helped me move in the past. I'll give just one quick shout out to the most recent time we moved because Chris Evan helped me in one of the days. And I just said, you know what, Chris, I'm like, I can't carry all of these and you lift weights a lot more than I do. And he really came through in the clutch. But again, that was him giving up a lot of his Friday um, to help me do something. You know, maybe it's praying for people regularly and letting them know when you do. I've never gotten a text that said, hey, Patrick, I prayed for you, and been like, please don't send this. <laughs> right? It always is so meaningful. And you look, sometimes we won't, you know, people won't, won't text back. You know, I've got friends like that. Sometimes I forget to respond. Sometimes he forgets to respond. But it always means something. I even remember um, during COVID, right, when I was staying home, helping my kids with online school. And it was, it was a very difficult, stressful season. Um, and I remember Lamar Allen, Pastor Lamar called and left me a message just to check in and see how, he was, how I was doing. And I never called him back. But I listened to that voicemail probably every other month because it just, it was helpful. And that was a gift that he gave to me. And so whether you hear some of these, these ideas and examples and think, oh, like I, I could do that one, or I don't know if any of these make sense for, for me in my stage of life, that's fine. The point is really just to think through, like what does it look like for me to be a part of a church family? Because if we are truly united in Christ and we have these deep spiritual bonds, this should be more than just a surface level interaction or a surface level 
um, relationship that we have with each other. Doesn't mean we all can know everybody super, super well. But what can it look like on Sundays? How can I make sure people feel like they belong? How can I get more involved? What's one small step to contribute to the health and the growth of this spiritual family? And Jesus, he has offered us this gift of eternal life. He has invited us to become a part of his spiritual family. So the first step is to, to accept. Accept his invitation. And after that, we're called to live together as a family. Because all of this lasts for eternity. Let's pray. God, thank you for our time together. Uh, thank you for this Calvary Church family that has poured into me um, for many years in various seasons of life. I pray that each Sunday that we come here, um, that everybody here would grow to know you more deeply, that we'd grow to love you more intimately, and to... Uh, just to love and serve each other better and better. Amen.